G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer. Thanks for listening. Now, today on the show, escalating tensions between Iran and the United States. The attack on Saudi energy reserves that's led to calls to attack Tehran, but Donald Trump is counselling restraint and caution. We'll hear two views. Plus, Conrad Black on Justin Trudeau and his blackface controversy in Canada, and why calls to impeach Donald Trump will backfire spectacularly on the Democrats. Stay with us for that. Well, this week, the US has made Iran's exploratory violence a theme of the UN General Assembly. Now, this follows the attack on oil facilities in Saudi Arabia earlier this month, which US and Saudi officials blame on Tehran. But Iran's mullahs deny responsibility. They back the claims of the Houthi rebels. They say they launched the attacks to defend themselves against a Saudi-led coalition they're fighting in Yemen. In any case, Washington is likely to face obstacles in mobilising global pressure against Iran at the UN. And although the Pentagon talks a hawkish language, Donald Trump plays down chances of a military strike on Iran. Here's the president in the Oval Office on September 20. For all of those that say, oh, they should do it, it shows weakness, it shows, actually, in my opinion, it shows strength. Because the easiest thing I could do, okay, go ahead, knock out 15 different major things in Iran. I could do that and all set to go. It's all set to go. But I'm not looking to do that if I can. Now, as President Trump there counselling restraint in the Persian Gulf. So who really is responsible for the major oil facility attack in Saudi Arabia and why? And how should the US and its allies respond? Well, we have a terrific panel. Danielle Pletka is Senior Vice President of Foreign and Defence Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. And Professor Amin Cycle is a Middle East Specialist at the Australian National University in Canberra and author of Iran Rising, The Survival and Future of the Islamic Republic. That's published by Princeton University Press. Danny, Armin, welcome back to Between the Lines. Thank you. Thanks so much. Now, Armin, let's start with you. What do we know a fortnight after the attacks? Do we have conclusive evidence that Tehran was behind this attack? Well, the Iranian authorities still deny it. Uh, but of course, the Saudi and American sites have come out and said that uh, Iranian missiles and drones have been used, but it's not really clearly established that uh, those uh, drones and missiles, uh, whether they were fired from Iran or from Iraq or for that matter from Yemen. And we should be clear that Britain, Germany and France do back the US and the Saudis and they blame Iran uh, for an attack on the Saudi oil facilities. Danny, Houthi rebels in, in Yemen, they've claimed responsibility for the attack. Could they have done this? Well, only if they are living in Iran. I suppose that they could have done it if they positioned themselves up north, which is where the drones and the missiles reportedly come from. Uh, and I don't think that the British and the French, and particularly the Germans, would have issued a joint statement at the United Nations blaming Iran for the attack if it had, in fact, been perpetrated by the Houthis. Yeah. I mean, what does it matter, ultimately, I mean, whether Iran enabled the Houthis to conduct this attack using Iranian weapons or whether it was the Iranians themselves who pulled the trigger? I mean, ultimately, what's the difference? 
Well, there is a difference because uh, Houthis are really fighting the Saudi-led coalition and therefore they have a lot of motives uh, to use whatever weapons at their disposal to use it against the Saudi facilities. It's not directly involved in, uh, in support of the Houthis, but of course indirectly supporting uh, the Houthis. So therefore, there is a fundamental difference. If the uh, missiles and the drones have come from Iran, then this is the first time that Iran has actually targeted an Arab state and the region and that is a very serious development but of course that still that would have to be absolutely established with hardcore evidence that you know that is the case okay but if you look at back at iran's past i mean would this be a departure from other actions that they've done danny no i don't think this is a departure although as i mean said i think it is an escalation look the Iranians have been behind a series of attacks on international shipping in the Gulf. But what we haven't seen from Iran is a direct attack from their territory on another country. And I think that this is an indication that they feel a sense of impunity in the region. The question for us to ask is, why do they feel that? In the United States, critics of the president, including Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, have argued that the reason they feel that way is because the president has refused to directly retaliate for an attack on an American asset and for escalating attacks on international energy supplies. Perhaps that is what's motivating them, that they can do it. So you think uh, Tehran sees uh, Trump's cancellation of airstrikes on Iran, I think this was last June, that's a sign of weakness and they're exploiting that? Absolutely. I don't think we can perceive it any other way, especially because the president's rhetoric doesn't match his actions. Mm. If you recall, at the time, he tweeted out, cocked and ready. This time he tweeted out, locked and loaded. I'm sorry. You know, those are just words. Yeah. What exactly is he loaded for? Yeah, Amin, is the, the mixed messages coming from this president leave aside his national security team that clearly talk a more consistently hawkish language. Are these mixed messages from the president, is that responsible for um, Iran escalating this crisis? Well, I mean, the mixed messages coming from uh, the president, uh, on the one hand, uh, provides uh, incentives to Rouhani and his supporters in order to exercise restraint and see the American lack of action uh, or military action as a restraint. But uh, on the other hand, uh, of course, uh, also President Trump has said that we are really ready to strike at any time and he has uh, ordered the deployment of more American forces and uh, region and more uh, military power in the area, uh, that would be really interpreted by hardliners in Iranian politics as uh, that the United States is preparing for a war and therefore Iran must be re ready to defend itself. Okay, but if Iran believes there is little cost to escalating this crisis, Danny, what do you think Washington should do? I think it's important to understand just how much precedent has been broken here. In the case of the drone downing by the Iranian military, I think there we can say that the president exercised a, a reasonable restraint and chose to retaliate with a major cyber attack, which was reported in the New York Times. 
The subsequent attacks on shipping were similarly retaliated against with a major cyber attack on Iran's capacity to interfere with shipping on its command and control. This is an attack on global energy supplies. It has been a staple of American foreign policy for the last seven decades that we will not tolerate interference in global energy supplies. Mm. The president has decided, eh, we won't do anything about that. I think that's very troubling, not just to Saudi Arabia, obviously, but to all of our allies in Europe, to frankly, to Israel and to others that look to us to be reliable in these matters. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, this has been an attack on global energy supplies, which sent uh, the price of crude oil are soaring. Given that Washington has cut off diplomatic ties with Tehran, I mean, what options does the US have in responding to this? I think the question that President Trump has asked himself is if the United States attack Iran, what would be the consequences? Would that really lead to a regional war? So what would be really the overall cost, not only for Iran, but also for the region and American interest in the region? If they can really find an option to, to resolve the issue or de-escalate the situation through diplomatic means, I think that would be far preferable than the United States launching a military campaign against Iran. And the Iranians are not going to be really pushed over. They have already demonstrated that a capacity to cause havoc in the region, and therefore they will respond decisively, and that could easily re- lead into a regional war uh, v- very costly for all sides involved. I'm in cycle is from the Australian National University in Canberra and Danielle Pletka is from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. We're talking about the security standoff in the Persian Gulf in the wake of that attack on the global energy supplies. Now, the Americans and Saudis, they say all the available evidence points to Tehran as the culprit. Yet, as we've discussed, President Trump has stressed he does not want war with the Iranians. Uh, Danny, Armin there just highlights the, the consequences of a US strike on Iran. Trump seems aware of that. Holman Jenkins, writing in the Wall Street Journal, says that Trump's base, for better or worse, this is his political base in America, they have little desire to see Trump become a war president. They sense that recent wars have not served US interests right. So in that regard, is it fair to say that both Trump and Armin Cycle are right? <laughs> well... I really don't agree with Holman's column from start to finish. Rather, I think it's important that we not suggest that the retaliation for this would be war with Iran, but rather a strike on Iranian assets. I think it's highly overblown to suggest that the Iranians would wish to engage in any sort of military tit-for-tat with the United States. Let's admit that the Iranians are no match for us. Yeah, but U.S. sanctions, though, are surely weakening the Iranian regime. I'm in. Uh, well, it's uh, weakening the Iranian economy, certainly, and it's really hurting the ordinary Iranians very badly. Uh, but uh, that does not necessarily mean that the regime is weakened and they have uh, main means and ways of getting around the sanctions in order to ensure the survival uh, of the regime. But the more the regime is now really threatened by the United States and some of its allies, uh, then uh, the more also the Iranian people will unite behind the regime, irrespective of whether they really like the regime or not, simply 
really because uh, that uh, that uh, a traditional uh, sense of Iranian nationalism would really come out, and uh, th- that is very much uh, ingrained in the psyche and behavior of the Iranian people. And I think that should not be really underestimated. And, and add to this, uh, some scholars, such as Professor John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago, past guest on this program, Danny. People like Mearsheimer argue that we've reached this uh, standoff with Iran because of Donald Trump himself, that he withdrew the U.S. from the Iranian nuclear deal. Danny, is the U.S. really the culprit here? Again, you know, there's always going to be a political school of thought that blames the United States for everything. John Mearsheimer likes to, to dabble in blaming either the United States or Israel, but basically only the United States and Israel. Look, the Iranians have brought this on themselves. The Iranians violated the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. The Iranians pursued a nuclear weapons program in contravention of their international obligations. The Iranians are supporting terrorists in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Yemen. The Iranians have absolutely nothing to hide behind, including Donald Trump. And you don't need to look to Donald Trump for a characterization of them. Is it, Barack Obama. Yeah, isn't that a fair point, Armin? I mean, Iran's proxies have been uh, extending their strategic reach across the Persian Gulf. You know, it's not just the Houthi rebels. It's also in Syria with the Assad regime. Uh, many parts of Iraq are, are affiliated with the Iranians. Doesn't Danny have a point there about Iranian imperialism? Well, whatever the shortcomings of the Iranians, I mean, one thing that we have to really acknowledge that the Rouhani and the Zarif government succeeded in concluding the nuclear agreement. And I think that was the best that could be achieved under the circumstances. There is no question that Iran has been successful in gaining influence in a number of countries in the region. And that's not just because that Iran has initiated something on its own, but also it is a question that some of the United States policy failures in, in the region have really played into the hands of the Iranians and have provided an opportunity for the Iranians to expand their influence in Iraq and, uh, of course, also in Syria and, uh, to, to some extent, in Yemen and so on. Unfortunately, when we look at the balance in, in the region, we have to recognize that Iran has done everything possible to destabilize our interests, to threaten our ally, Israel, to threaten our diplomats, to threaten our soldiers, to murder our soldiers in Iraq, to damage international oil supplies. While the Saudis have been bad actors historically and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has made any number of very egregious mistakes, bad judgments, at the end of the day, it is still on balance Iran that represents the most serious threats to our interests. Trump has actually flirted with opening the door to a meeting with either Iran's president or the foreign minister at the UN this week. Is that really possible given the conduct of Tehran in the region? I think it is possible. I mean, so far, the Iranian Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei has said that there should be no negotiations with the Americans. And, and of course, the Rouhani government has really followed that line. But I think uh, with something more, and they've said that, that if the United States lifts uh, some of its uh, draconian sanctions against Iran. Uh, that will provide the Rouhani government with a positive narrative to convince the hardliners that, yes, I think this is in the interest of Iran, and therefore I think we should really open dialogue uh, with the United States. Okay, Danny, I know that you obviously oppose an accommodation with Tehran. Final thoughts on what Washington should do now? I do oppose any sort of settlement with Iran that allows 
it to keep its nuclear weapons program that allows it to continue to oppress its own people. The problem for us is that abandoning those things is abandoning what is most important to the regime, which is regime security. What should we be doing? We should keep up our sanctions and we should have a strategy for what we want next. That's really the most trenchant criticism of American policy is that we don't really know what it is we want to achieve beyond the maximum pressure campaign. Danny, Armin, as always, a lively discussion. Thanks so much for being on RN. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. That was Danielle Pletka from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington and Armin Cycle from ANU in Canberra. He's the author of Iran Rising, The Survival and Future of the Islamic Republic. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Now, from where we sit down under in Australia, one needs very good peripheral vision to follow Canada in the international political sphere. Mind you, I guess Canadian feelings are mutual about us. <laughs> However, Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, he's the fresh-faced 47-year-old son of the Liberal Party icon, Pierre Trudeau. Well, he's been in headline news and a figure of fun around the world in the past week. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is a proud progressive. He's emphasized inclusiveness and tolerance as Prime Minister of Canada, but now he's just the latest politician caught up in an episode from years ago where he darkened his skin for fun, blackface, and he's in a tight election. Now, two more images have emerged since that story broke. Well, to enlighten us about the progressive and inclusive Trudeau on the eve of Canada's October 21 election, as well as address the latest controversy surrounding Donald Trump, let's hear from Conrad Black, no stranger to this program or indeed our country. Now, Conrad is a former media baron who owned the Telegraph Group in the UK and many prominent titles around the world. He's author of several influential books, including Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Champion of Freedom, Richard M. Nixon, A Life in Full, and most recently, Donald J. Trump, a president like no other. Conrad, welcome back to Between the Lines. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. So we've got a younger Trudeau here painting his face to impersonate an ethnic minority three times. Is the progressive left turning against him? Uh, not exactly, I think. Uh, the, the problem, I mean, in fairness, the, la the last of such incidents was, I believe, 18 years ago, and it was an Aladdin party. But I think people would concede, even Justin's opponents, that he is certainly not a bigot or a racist or anything like that. But it does make his unctuous uh, disparagements of others and his politically correct fault-finding with others appear to be rank hypocrisy. So it's embarrassing for him. But um, underneath that, however, the liberal organization is sniping away uh, digging up uh, statements made by individual conservative candidates years before in, in peculiar places that can be construed as casting aspersions on their tolerance, doing a smear job one at a time after these opposition candidates. And their ability to go on doing that is going to be severely compromised by this embarrassment of their leaders. And, and that's not to mention the laughter across the border in the United States. Well, um, well that's another thing. Canadians are... are terribly self-conscious about what the Americans think of them. And to have the country suddenly a laughing stock on the late-night joking shows and these huge radio talk shows and so on. Speaking of which, let's get a load of Stephen Colbert. Now, uh, there is some big news out of Canada. 
concerning Prime Minister and man you're a boot to be surprised by <laughs> Justin Trudeau. A photo has emerged of Trudeau wearing brown face at a party. This is pretty bad. And I just want to say, it's not us this time! Suck it, Canada! Yeah, look, I have no great admirer of Stephen Colbert, but Aladdin, as you know, was an Arab, not an African. That's right, and yeah. Yet, uh, Justin put on a black face, not a brown one. Look, the, the issue here isn't that Justin is a bad man. He isn't. He's a nice guy. I mean, I don't think he's any prize as a prime minister, but that's another issue. He's a good man. But it, it is the liberals' ability to continue being the unctuous party of political correctness when uh, their own leader has remembrances of himself, you know, in get-ups that are simply not appropriate nowadays. Now, if Trudeau loses the election in a few weeks... Your argument is it won't be because he's a closet racist. I get all that. But there are surely more profound reasons why he could be in trouble. What are they? Uh, it's not a government that can stand on its record. The unemployment is low, but that's the straight backdraft from the Trump boom in the United States. You know, 40% of our economy is commerce with the United States. And their whole policy emphasis for these four years has been a wildly out-of-control overreaction to climate concern, a completely bungled but extravagant policy towards the native people, an absurd preoccupation with the minutiae of, of gender politics. And I, I don't mean to make light of those people. They're, you know, they deserve their rights as much as anybody else, but it has been an absurd overpreoccupation of them. And uh, the sort of light motif has been the partial legalization of marijuana, but it's been so heavily regulated that my understanding is that, that those who legally produce and sell marijuana cannot do so uh, on a competitive price basis with, with illegal sources. And it, that is the record. So they have to run on Justin's agreeable personality, a, a, a ludicrous and easily caricatured level of political correctness, and this sniping operation being conducted by the Dirty Tricks Division of the Liberal Party. Let's get back to the uh, climate policies. You mentioned Trudeau's carbon tax policies. Now, like Australia, Canada has relied heavily on fossil fuels as an engine of growth. To what extent has there been a backlash against Trudeau's green energy agenda? Well, in the oil-producing and gas-producing areas, to an extreme degree, uh, the great Liberal Party in the recent provincial election, your equivalent of a state election, in Alberta, which is the main oil-producing province, the Liberal Party got 0.08% of the vote. I mean, there's no chance that the present governing party will get a single MP. And, this, uh, by the way, is a bit like energy-rich Queensland in our own federal election on February 18. There was yes. a huge backlash against Labor in Queensland over this very issue. In fairness, these people don't like to be told that, uh, uh, that they're enemies of society, poisoners of the atmosphere, and a menace to the planet. And uh, in my opinion, the Trudeau government's policy in this matter is insane. And, and it is a terrible oppression of that part of the country. So is the scene set for Canada's Conservative opposition leader, this is Andrew Scheer, to win in, in October 21? This is what you say about Scheer in the National Post, that he's not a stemwinder and will not be teaching charisma studies as a post-political university career. <laughs> but he's a good man, and I, and I said that in there. He's, as I said, I think if he were to win, it, it, it would put us in mind of Orwell's phrase about a government of decent men. Uh, I mean, he's a very decent, sensible man. He's, he's not... Uh, He's, if I may, everything is to scale. He's more of a Johnny Howard than a Paul Keating, but that's not bad. That's a good thing to be. 
Uh, look, I, I, I want to be clear. I think it's a toss-up right now as to who will win. It's not as if Trudeau has completely scuttled himself. He's got a chance to win, a good chance to win. But uh, And then if there's a minority, that would still favor Trudeau because the next two parties after the two large parties would be uh, a socialist party that would uh, rather support the liberals than the conservatives. So it, it isn't over yet by any means, but, it, but it, I would say it's a toss-up as to who emerges as the government. I think Scheer would be good. My guest is Conrad Black, and we've been talking about Justin Trudeau and Canada's upcoming election. Now, earlier this year, President Trump pardoned Conrad, who was convicted in 2007 of fraud and obstruction of justice. Some of those, many of those charges were later overturned, Conrad. Now, speaking of Trump, congressional investigations into his dealings with Ukraine, uh, that is, um, they're mushrooming. Uh, the president urged his Ukrainian counterpart to investigate Joe Biden's son, Hunter, for business dealings. Democrats are having another impeachment moment, Conrad. How is this likely to play out? It's a complete farce, and it'll just evaporate like the... Uh the, the Russian collusion nonsense, and it won't last for more than another week or so. What about level. Joe Biden's conflict of interest when he was vice president? Well, because here like he was I demanding that Ukraine fire a prosecutor investigating corruption, including a company that hired Biden's uh, son as a director. Isn't, isn't there a double standard there? Yeah, $50,000 a month, which is an unheard of fee for a director in an area where he had no expertise. Uh, look, I, I, you give everyone the benefit of the doubt and the presumption of innocence, but it is more likely that the Republicans planted this thing to get the Biden story out there because the media had been ignoring it. And the fact is, there's absolutely zero possibility that Trump did anything compromising. I mean, under the well-settled text and precedent of the American system uh, to remove a high public official, including the president from office, you must convince two-thirds of senators of the existence beyond a reasonable doubt of proof of high crimes. The idea that the president could commit high crimes in a telephone call with the president of Ukraine with dozens of people on the phone is simply not sane. I don't mean improbable. It is not sane. But that's the state of, of hysterical partisanship that elements of the Democratic Party have reached. They've never accepted that Trump won. He was, after all, attacking the entire political class, uh, every faction of both parties. He was attacking the Bushes as much as Obama and the Clintons, and, and he's gradually taken over. It's now the Republicans are now his party. All the never Trumpers, like well, McCain, died, but the others, like Corker and Senator Flake and so on, the Speaker Paul Ryan, they've retired. It, it's his party, and it's basically his country now. I mean, he, he is strong in the polls, and he's almost certain to be reelected. I mean, he, he's stopping illegal immigration. He's got more positions being uh, offered to be filled than there are unemployed people in the country with practically no inflation, sharp increases in the income of the lower economic groups. Uh, and then the, uh, he, he's, he's rebuilt these trade deals, eliminated oil imports. This man has delivered for the people. And the Democrats are in a kind of mad denial with the collaboration of their media who were part of the swamp. Should the Democrats impeach Donald Trump over this latest controversy? What are the consequences of that? Well, they're death warrant. That's what it is. If they did it, death warrant for the Democrats. They, they, they will have no case, and there's no way that the House of Representatives is going to vote impeachment on that. And if they do, as Senator Graham, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, senator from South Carolina, 
said it'll be dead on arrival. His committee won't present it to the Senate. The trouble is, and I was one of those, and I'm so venerable, Tom, I said at the time of Watergate, uh, the banding about this idea of impeaching an extremely successful president, which Mr. Nixon was, uh, is going to lead to the trivialization of impeachment and the criminalization of policy differences. And that's where we're getting to. I mean, the, the, the impeachment of Bill Clinton was a farce. You don't impeach a president over peccadilloes like that. And the threat to impeach Trump is an even worse farce. And and it's becoming like a, a vote of no confidence in a parliamentary system. But that's not what impeachment is. It's the proof of crimes. Uh, my hope is at the end of this, both parties will have learned that trying to impeach your opponent just because you disagree with them is not the way the country should function and certainly not what the authors of the Constitution intended. Conrad, it's always wonderful to have you on Between the Lines. It's always my pleasure and may I greet all my friends in Australia. That was Conrad Black, a columnist with Canada's National Post and author of Donald J. Trump, A President Like No Other. Well, that's it for the show this week, and thanks so much for tuning in. Now, remember, if you'd like to listen to our interviews with Conrad Black and the debate over Iran and Saudi Arabia, just go to our website, abc.net.au slash rn, and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. And, of course, you can always listen to us on ABC Listen app. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next week.